welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast series. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you to episode three. Here at the Guild, I am part of the Lectures and Community Engagement Department, and our podcast series as a whole will be drawing from all the different programs that we run in person here at Lincoln Center in New York City, including things like pre-performance lectures, classes, artist interviews, and much, much more. So our goal is to bring you a variety of content as our podcast series develops. Today we will be diving into an opera that has been performed over 450 times on the Met stage since its Met premiere in 1884, Wagner's Tannhäuser. And the opera will be hitting another landmark in its history at the Met, as this coming Saturday, October 31st, 2015, the matinee performance will be broadcast live in HD to theaters across the country and around the globe. For this podcast episode, we are reviving a wonderful lecture from our archives, originally part of the Talking About Opera series, with this segment written and narrated by David Hamilton. David Hamilton was a faculty member at the Juilliard School, and he had a long relationship with the Metropolitan Opera, co-editing the Met Opera Encyclopedia, and he was a longtime contributor to the Met's Opera Quiz on the weekly radio broadcast. So without further delay, here is David Hamilton delving into Wagner's Tannhäuser. On Sunday, October 19, 1843, Richard Wagner's Tannhäuser received its first performance at the Royal Saxon Court Theatre in Dresden, the composer's native city. The program described the new work as a grand romantic opera in three acts, those adjectives locating it at the intersection of two major 19th century traditions. One was grand opera, which evolved in Paris in the first decades of the century. Its subjects were usually drawn from history, embodying conflicts often political or religious, frequently set in exotic locales, and incorporating scenes of spectacular pageantry. The Paris opera was the focal point of this genre, which attracted not only native French composers, but also Italians such as Spontini, Rossini, and later Verdi, and Germans, notably Meyerbeer. Spontini's La Vestale, Rossini's William Tell, Alevi's La Juive, Meyerbeer's Les Huguenots are occasionally still revived, while Verdi's Don Carlos and Aida, exceptionally sophisticated refinements of grand opera, have never really left the repertory. The second adjective applied to Tannhäuser, romantic, evokes the literary and theatrical movement that swept Germany and later Britain, France, and the rest of Europe, beginning at the end of the 18th century. Shunning classical rationality in favor of a fascination with the irrational, symbolic, intuitive, and mythical, the Romantics immersed themselves in folklore and the supernatural. They also responded vividly to the fresh interest in national history and identity that had been positively awakened by the French Revolution and then negatively reinforced by Napoleon's expansionist drives, especially among the politically fragmented German and Italian peoples. Romanticism's most influential operatic manifestation was Karl Maria von Weber's Der Freischütz, launched in Berlin in 1821, a folk-like tale of the German forest with innocence subjected to infernal spells and temptations. After its premiere, Der Freischütz swept through the German opera houses, reaching Dresden in January 1822, Enthralled by the spooky story and later by the music, he learned to pick out the overture on the piano, and with school friends he put on backyard performances. Between 1833 and 1839, working his way upwards in small German opera theaters, Wagner became minutely familiar not only with the works of Mozart, Beethoven, and Weber, 
but also with French operas both grand and comic, and Italian operas by Rossini and Bellini. In Die Feen, The Fairies, his first opera, completed in 1833 but not performed during his lifetime, Wagner followed Weber's model. But in his next, Das Liebesverbot, The Ban on Love, unsuccessfully launched in Magdeburg in 1836, he emulated French and Italian comic opera. In 1839, when his operatic position in Riga was not renewed, his accumulated debts required a nocturnal flight by sea. He ended up in Paris for several miserable years, 1839 to 42, doing hack work for a living and hoping to get his works performed. There, of course, he was exposed to the grandest of grand opera and composed Rienzi, a five-act historical spectacle in Meyerbeerian style. But his next work returned to his German romantic roots, the supernatural tale of the Flying Dutchman. In 1842, thanks to Meyerbeer's recommendation, Rienzi was accepted by the Dresden Opera and performed to great acclaim, leading to Wagner's appointment as the company's musical director. Early the next year, Dresden received the premiere of The Flying Dutchman more equivocally. It was too novel and different. Lacking the spectacle of Rienzi, it was also more somber than Der Freischütz. By then, Wagner was at work on Tannhäuser, Although his fascination with medieval German history and literature was shared by many adherents of German Romanticism, few of them made such potent use of the sources as he did. Tannhäuser, Lohengrin, The Ring, Tristan, Die Meistersinger, and Parsifal are all rooted in this period. During a holiday in the Bohemian Mountains in June 1842, en route from Paris to Dresden, he had drafted the scenario for an opera drawn from literary works by and about the Minnesingers, German courtly minstrels of the 13th century. The libretto itself was not finished until the following April. He began composing in the summer of 1843 and completed the full score on April 15, 1845. Wagner drew on several sources for his libretto, combining them into a new narrative that dealt as did all his operas, with subjects that in some way intersected with his own life. Many of the minstrels in Tannhäuser bear the names of historical figures. Walter von der Vogelweide was one of the most celebrated minnesingers, and Wolfram von Eschenbach wrote the epic poem that later became a principal source for Wagner's Parsifal. The action takes place in the environs of the Wartburg Castle near Eisenach in the German province of Thuringia a notable site in German history. Among other events, it was there that Martin Luther began his translation of the New Testament into German. Its lord, the Landgrave Hermann, was a noted patron of the minstrels. And his historical daughter-in-law, Elizabeth, widowed at 20 when her husband died during a crusade, emulated St. Francis by taking up a life of poverty and charity until her death four years later and was eventually canonized as Saint Elizabeth. Her descendants populated several German thrones, including that of Dresden, and her cult was still prominent in Wagner's day. Though his Elizabeth has a different history, the aura of the historical saint would have hung around her by association. Indeed, she is often referred to as saintly. Another of Wagner's early sources tells of an historical knight and poet named Tannhäuser, or something like that, medieval spelling was not notable for consistency. In some accounts, this fellow was reported to have spent time with the classical love goddess Venus in an erotic mountain grotto. Medieval folklore held that after Christianity conquered the Roman Empire, the classical Greco-Roman gods and goddesses retreated to an exile beneath the Earth's surface, where they carried on their hedonistic lifestyles. Eventually wearying of Venus's charms, Tannhäuser traveled to Rome to seek absolution for his sinful behavior. But the Pope offered him slim hope. Pointing to the dry, withered wood of his ecclesiastical staff, he declared that, This will grow leaves before you will receive God's grace. So the desperate Tannhäuser returned to Venus, unaware that the papal staff later blossomed. The contrast between Venus and Elizabeth embodies the conflict of sacred and profane love that is another thread of this opera's substance. The linchpin of Wagner's dramatic action, the contentious song contest of the minstrels, comes from yet another medieval narrative, 
which the composer librettist shaped to present his protagonist as a species of rebel artist, one whose songs appall his auditors by their stylistic and sensual license. By the way, the resemblance between Tannhäuser and Walter von Stolzing in Meistersinger is no coincidence. Just as the German master singers were bourgeois emulators of the Minnesingers, Wagner conceived his later opera as a comic parallel to his earlier tragedy. And, of course, the experiences of both protagonists embody elements of Wagner's own reception as an artist in the society of his own time. The initial Dresden performances of Tannhäuser got a mixed reception, due not only to the novelty of the work, but also to casting inadequacies. Wagner himself found flaws in the opera's original form. Though he had brought together the materials for a powerful drama, he had more trouble getting the dramatic and musical details exactly right than with any other of his operas. While still at Dresden, he abridged the initially lengthy prelude to Act Three, and in 1847 he rewrote the opera's finale in which Venus's presence had been merely indicated by a rosy light and Elizabeth's spear was not brought on stage, her death being signaled only by bells from the castle. Audiences were baffled, and Wagner drew from it the lesson that nothing that lies within the possibilities of representation on the stage should be merely thought or indicated, rather everything should be actually shown. But the major alterations took place in 1860, when important people in Paris, partly for political reasons, arranged for the Paris Opera to stage Tannhäuser. For this occasion, it would of course be sung in French, and provided with a substantial ballet, preferably in the second act. Since a ballet at the Wartburg was not dramatically appropriate, Wagner expanded the existing one in the Venusberg scene during which various love affairs from Greco-Roman mythology were depicted, set to new music in the style of his most recent work, the as yet unperformed Tristan und Isolde. To make the opening scene of Venus and Tannhäuser more compatible with the ballet, Wagner recomposed and extended their duet, writing new text and setting it, in French translation, to new music, adding about ten minutes to the scene and greater variety to its character. Lesser changes were made at several other points in the opera. The Paris Tannhäuser, which opened on March 13, 1861, became a major scandal, though not for musical reasons. Political and social elements in Paris arranged vigorous disruptions at the first three performances, after which Wagner withdrew the opera. The costumes were recycled for use in Meyerbeer's Robert le Diable. Among the reactions that had been preserved was that of the composer's first wife, Minna, who wrote to her daughter that Ricard has cut the lovely overture of his Tannhäuser and instead has added a mess of Venus hocus-pocus. And Verdi's Paris publisher told him about a French officer on duty at the theater who said, Sir, I fought in the Crimean War, I fought in the Italian War, I was at Solferino, and I never trembled. Well, sir, this music frightens me, and I am leaving. Sometime later, either in Munich in 1867 or at a Vienna concert in 1872, Wagner lopped off the last part of the original overture and made it flow without interruption into the Venusberg ballet music. But he remained dissatisfied with the opera, and in 1883, just weeks before his death, he told Cosima, his second wife, that I still owe the world Tannhäuser. For various reasons, this Paris version of the work has never fully replaced the final state of the Dresden version, although the Metropolitan Opera has used it predominantly. Despite stylistic inconsistencies in the music, the Paris score is certainly more interesting. Curiously, the Paris version has only rarely been recorded, since the only complete recordings available for use in this presentation were of the Dresden version, you may notice some minor divergences in the music examples from the Metz performances. One characteristic of grand opera that Wagner cultivated assiduously was the use of musical instruments on stage, and Tannhäuser is no exception. Worth mention in this context, since the distinction between stage and pit sounds is not always clear in recordings. The Venusberg scene includes an offstage orchestra and chorus of sirens. Later, a shepherd accompanies his song of greeting to spring with a pipe, its sound provided by an English hornist in the wings. The Landgrave's hunting party at the end of Act One is accompanied by a dozen each of hornists and trumpeters. 
The minstrels often sing to the sounds of a harp, though in fact they are pantomiming on dummy instruments that probably could not produce all the sounds emanating from the orchestral harp in the pit. An essential expressive feature of the opera is the contrast between diatonic music, using the standard seven-note scale and harmonies derived from it, and chromatic music, using all of the notes between as well, yielding slithery scales and more dissonant harmonies. Wagner matches these to the conflict between the world of the faithful and that of the sinners, including the adherents of Venus. This opposition is already prominent in the overture, which begins with the most famous of the several hymn-like choruses of pilgrims that recur in the opera. Its first strain is diatonic, but the second one associated with the burden of sin and guilt the pilgrims hope to discharge by their trek to the holy city of Rome includes chromatic notes. The music appears to approach from a distance, building to a climax, then receding, eventually giving way to more slithery, often dance-like music. This then alternates with orchestral statements of Tannhäuser's Song of Praise to Venus, which we'll hear shortly in its vocal form. In the opera's Paris version, the Venusberg ballet becomes more vigorous and then more luxuriantly sensual, very much in the highly chromatic style of Wagner's Tristan. In this and the previous example, drawn from a recording of the Paris Overture and Ballet Music, we hear the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Herbert von Karajan. Whereas the Dresden Overture was rounded out with the return of the Pilgrim's music rising to a fortissimo climax, the ultimate form of the Paris version continues with music of the Venusberg, upon which the curtain rises for the opera's initial scene, with nymphs, satyrs, and mythological figures engaged in riotous carousing and more relaxed sensuality. Tannhäuser has been reclining at the feet of the goddess, who asks him where his mind has been wandering and she is not pleased to hear that he has been dreaming of the mortal world with its sounds of nature, its days and nights, its sun and starlit sky, its seasons, all of which he misses. 
Upset by the suggestion that her delights could fail to wholly entrance him, Venus orders him to sing to her, giving thanks for the passion that won him her favors. He picks up his harp and sings a hymn of praise to her, starting vigorously, but flagging in order when he insists that his mortality requires something more than passion alone. He longs for change and asks to be set free. Here's the first stanza of his hymn to Venus. This and our subsequent examples are drawn from a recording featuring Hans Hopf in the title role with Elisabeth Grimmer as Elizabeth, Marianne Scheck as Venus, Fritz Wunderlich as Walter, Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau as Wolfram, and Gottlob Frick as the Landgrave. Franz Konvichny conducts the Berlin State Opera Chorus and Orchestra. Venus wonders what she is doing wrong, and Tannhäuser replies with a second stanza of his hymn, at a higher pitch than before and with pizzicato strings added to the harp. Again acknowledging the wonders of her realm, he still yearns to see the sky, hear the song of a bird and the chiming of bells. He begs her to set him free. After an outburst of scorn and anger, she changes tactics and becomes seductive, backed by an invisible chorus of naiads. But her minstrel's mind is not altered, and after yet another verse of his hymn, at a still higher pitch generating more intensity, she disgustedly tells him to go, warning that he will come crawling back to her. At the height of the argument, Tannhäuser invokes the name of the Virgin, causing the Venusberg to disappear amidst an orchestral cataclysm. When the darkness lifts, he finds himself in a valley near the Wartburg, near a shrine to the Virgin. A young shepherd is playing his pipe and greeting spring with a song.
As the shepherd pipes a livelier tune, we hear a chorus of pilgrims on their way to Rome. This chorus has a march-like tread, but it eventually also contains the contrasting chromatic strain heard in the pilgrim music of the overture, a melody that Tannhäuser then sings after praising God for the wonder of his deliverance. The entire sound picture makes a striking contrast to the lushness of the Venusberg scene. The shepherd has now moved away with his sheep, and we hear hunting horns. A number of minstrel knights enter, led by the landgrave. They notice Tannhäuser and soon recognize him. From the conversation, it appears that he had left the Landgrave's court after behavior deemed arrogant, and some express doubt that he has returned in peace. Wolfram von Eschenbach makes a friendly gesture, and soon all agree that the strayed one should return, though Tannhäuser himself remains reluctant. Finally, in a striking intervention, Wolfram invokes the name of Elizabeth, the Landgrave's niece, and Tannhäuser is suddenly spellbound. Here's the ensemble building up to that striking moment, with Tannhäuser's rising lines insisting that his destiny drives him elsewhere, the knights pleading, and a Wolfram's intervention. In an aria that turns into another ensemble, Wolfram tells Tannhäuser how his songs used to enchant Elizabeth, but since his departure she has been desolate. Deeply moved, Tannhäuser responds with a cry, Take me to her, and expresses his joy in his return to the world, the spring, and Elizabeth with a vigorous descending phrase.
Horns signaled the arrival of the rest of the hunting party, and all set off for the Wartburg in a mood of rejoicing at the return of the prodigal. The opera's second act is set in the Wartburg castle itself, in the grand hall where the minstrel song contests take place. At the rear, a large window overlooks the valley below. The introductory music is marked by upwards leaping phrases that will dominate Elizabeth's song of greeting to the hall she has shunned for so long. But it also quotes Tannhäuser's vigorous descending phrase from the finale of Act One. Solo wind phrases are prominent and these instruments will be particularly associated with Elizabeth during the opera's course. Elizabeth greets the hall anew after her long absence, then recalls how empty it seemed after Tannhäuser left. But now the orchestra's rising phrases return as her heart beats with joy and pleasure. Here is the final part of her aria. Wolfram now brings in Tannhäuser, who kneels before Elizabeth. She bids him rise and inquires where he has been in his absence, but he offers only a vague explanation, instead praising the miracle that brought him back to the Wartburg. Graciously, she sings about the special impression his music made upon her. What spell had he cast upon her? Rapturously, he responds that she should praise the god of love. Note the gender he assigns to the deity. They join voices in a vigorous duet that seems to have been inspired by the duet O Namen Lose Freude in Beethoven's Fidelio, an opera Wagner had long admired. Interestingly, the soprano Wilhelmina Schröder de Vrindt, whose portrayal of Fidelio apparently thrilled Wagner as a young man, sang Venus in the premiere of Tannhäuser. A scene between Elizabeth and her uncle, the Landgrave, follows. He has seen into her heart and tells her that the nobles of the land will soon arrive for a solemn contest of minstrels. She is to crown the winner. With fanfares off and on stage, the guests arrive, lords and ladies and their pages, to the tune of a grand march with contrasting strains, a characteristic grand opera production number. After the fanfares, the orchestra introduces the main elements of this episode. First, a solemn sustained melody that will later be sung by the knights and the nobles. 
Second, a more flowing tune over a chugging accompaniment for the women. And third, a vigorous figure in the basses. After the orchestral build-up, the chorus enters, and Wagner builds a grand climax for the full forces. The minstrel contestants arrive, and the Landgrave addresses them in strongly accented recitative, speaking of the power of song and its role in his realm, and setting the topic of the day's song contest. Can the singers fathom the ways of love? Elizabeth draws the names of the singers. Wolfram is to lead off. His song is conservatively declamatory, accompanied primarily by harp. In the assembled company, he sees a forest of heroes, the knights, and a field of flowers, the ladies, and professes an idealized love, its object a clear and pure fountain that he could never defile. The audience responds warmly. When Tannhäuser rises to sing, the orchestra briefly recalls music from the Venusberg. He describes an earthier ideal than Wolfram, involving flesh and blood as well as worship. The listeners are astounded, and Elizabeth is clearly upset and conflicted. Another minstrel, Bitterolf, rises to challenge him to hearty approval. But Tannhäuser, unrepentant, calls him a foolish boaster, an angry wolf. Bitterolf draws his sword and ignores the Landgrave's command to sheathe it. Wolfram steps between these contenders with a prayer that heaven may inspire his song in praise of holy love, banishing all sinful thoughts from this noble gathering. His plea is accompanied by rapid arpeggios, which continue to flow when Tannhäuser rises to sing another stanza of his hymn to Venus, rendered even more intense by its driving tempo, fuller orchestration, and the highest key yet.
disorder ensues, as all realize where Tynorzer has been during his absence. The noble ladies flee the hall as if it were contaminated. Only Elizabeth remains, appalled but steadfast. When the knights move toward Tannhäuser with drawn swords, she rushes to shield him with a cry of Zurück, stand back. Another moment inspired by the dungeon scene in Fidelio, the point when Leonora draws her pistol and faces down Pizarro. The knights are mystified by her intervention. She replies that she, far more than they, has been wounded by this revelation. She insists that Tannhäuser, as a victim of pagan spells, deserves a chance for redemption. Eloquently she prays on his behalf, Ich flehe für ihn, I plead for him, noting that the Savior died for the salvation of sinners as well as saints. The knights accept her intervention, sparing Tannhäuser's life for now, though they cannot forgive what he has done. Wagner builds this ensemble to a mighty climax on the phrase to which Elizabeth sang the words, Ich flehe für ihn.
The Landgrave now takes over. Tannhäuser has shamed the community and cannot remain, but one possible path to redemption is at hand. He can join a band of pilgrims about to leave for Rome, a younger group than those we saw in Act I. Over a marching bass, a chorale-like melody builds still another powerful ensemble. The knights insist that Tannhäuser may not return without a pardon from the Pope, or their swords will mete out justice. Elizabeth prays that God will grant grace to the sinner, and Tannhäuser vows to earn his pardon for the sake of Elizabeth. ensemble breaks off, the chorus of younger pilgrims is heard down in the valley, and Tannhäuser, crying, To Rome, hastens to follow them. The third and final act returns to the valley seen in Act One, but now the season is autumn. Before the curtain rises, an orchestral introduction offers themes already familiar, including one of the pilgrims' choruses and Elizabeth's Ischflei Fiorin as well as a restless motive in the lower strings that will come to signify Tannhäuser making his way on the road to Rome. A rising theme in the brass resembling the Dresden Amen familiar from Wagner's Parsifal evokes the holy city, building to climaxes and then rising into the high violins. As the curtain opens, woodwind phrases turn our minds to Elizabeth, who is praying beneath the shrine to the Virgin. Wolfram is nearby watching her. He sings of how she waits there every evening for the returning pilgrims. In the distance we hear them, singing the melody that opened the overture. It builds to a mighty climax as the full group reaches the stage, then fades as they pass on. Elizabeth has scanned all their faces, confirming that Tannhäuser is not among them. She kneels at the shrine and prays to the Virgin for death so that she may arrive in heaven and there plead directly for Tannhäuser's salvation. Woodwinds are again prominent, especially the somber color of the bass clarinet. Here are the opening phrases of this deceptively simple aria. Despite the absence of anything showy, such as high notes or coloratura, its slow sustained lines require an absolutely secure vocal technique. The prayer has an eloquent orchestral epilogue, 
When Elizabeth rises to leave, Wolfram nears her and offers to accompany her, but she points towards heaven and departs. Alone he picks up his harp and sings to the evening star, asking it to watch over Elizabeth, whom he has always loved. This aria, with its solemn but not somber harmonies, has always been one of Wagner's most beloved. As the cellos muse on the aria's melody, Wolfram continues to play on his harp until repeated horn notes and an ominous harmony sound. It is Tannhäuser, who, to his friend's horror, is in search of the entrance to the Venusberg. Eventually, Wolfram extracts the story from him, how Tannhäuser set off to Rome, fully penitent and cognizant of his debt to Elizabeth. The restless, halting theme heard in the introduction to Act Three now serves as a kind of glue for this unconventional aria. Here am Wolfram. Here am. Herzen, wie kein Pieserloch sie gefüllt, sucht ich den Weg nach Rom. He took all the hardest paths, slept in the alpine snow instead of the shelter, and closed his eyes to the beautiful Italian countryside. He arrived in Rome, heard the bells and the heavenly songs. Again, we hear the Dresden Amen theme. But when he reached the Pope and confessed his sin, the reply was stony. If you have dwelt in the Venusberg, you are forever damned. 
Just as my staff will never bring forth flowers, so salvation can never blossom from the hot brand of hell. Intending to return to Venus, as she had predicted he would, Tannhäuser calls upon her. Her music reappears, then a misty light, and eventually her figure and her voice. Wolfram desperately tries to restrain his friend, crying that one word will free him of his burden. An angel prays for you in heaven, Elizabeth. Again, as in Act One, the name is talismanic. Venus and her cohorts vanish as a chorus of minstrels and other men appear in the dawn, a funeral procession bearing Elizabeth's bier. Calling upon blessed Elizabeth to pray for him, Tannhäuser collapses on the coffin and dies. At this point, the younger pilgrims, the ones with whom Tannhäuser had set out to Rome, appear, bearing news. The papal staff has indeed brought forth fresh green leaves, evidence of Tannhäuser's salvation. The knights and the older pilgrims then chime in, rounding off the opera with a majestic statement of the most familiar of the opera's several pilgrims' choruses, affirming God's forgiveness of the sinner who repents. for tuning in to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. If you enjoyed listening and want to hear more, please subscribe to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast in iTunes to receive automatic downloads of all new episodes. If you want more information about live Met Guild events, or if you just want to read more about what we're up to here at Lincoln Center, please visit www.metguild.org. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host. This was episode three, and I look forward to having you back for episode four.